All right, so this is uh, episode three of Between Two Pines. Uh, this week, uh, we're going to be talking about a few things. We got some news articles on deck. Uh, we're going to be talking about some woodpeckers that are getting burned alive. Uh, we're going to talk about William Perry Penley is what we'll call him for now. And then we're going to touch on the hot topic going into the fall, which is the annual duck survey. And we're going to talk about some of our insights on that. And then we have a new section, uh, hot gear, cold beer, where Zach and I will tell you a little bit about uh, the new gear that we've been using and some of the beers that we've been trying out. So, Zach, uh, what'd you do this weekend? Anything fun and exciting? Uh, this weekend. This weekend, I went up to Manitowoc, Wisconsin with Tracy, my girlfriend, um, who visited her folks and hung out up there and... I definitely stopped at Cabela's in Green Bay, so I got my fix for a little while with that. But it was nice, man. Uh, weather's getting to – we were hitting 50 degrees at night. It's it's fall. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, uh, they're up north. I was looking up north. I was, uh, I was in Tomahawk this weekend, just a little bit north of us. They are getting frost warnings this weekend, which is insane in, in August. I was like, geez, Louise. But, yeah, but uh, anything else? So how was the Cabela's up there? Was it any better than the ones uh, in Chicago? Oh, that Cabela's is green. in Green Bay is pretty amazing. Um, just pick ginormous. Up pick up anything good? Uh, I actually picked up one of my new hot gears for the week, so I'm going to save that. But I also picked up some muzzleloader bullets and muzzleloader powder. Oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. And did you uh, pull my uh, error that I always do and go down the fishing aisle and then black out for five minutes? And then all of a sudden you have $100 worth of fishing gear? Or did you do the better bet and just avoid the fishing aisle? <laughs> yeah, I was. I went down the fishing aisle, but then I saw that there was a decoy sale. <laughs> so my gravitational pull went that way. So you and, went over there and blacked out. Yeah, but if I would have brought too much stuff home, I probably would have been walking back to Southern Missouri. So uh, I tried to stay as tame as possible in there. Yeah, no, it it, uh, it happens, but yeah, no, that's uh, that's good. And then uh, yeah, we'll talk about what we got coming up this week. But uh, yeah, so you bought some stuff, went out to Green Bay. Did you get any fishing in? No, I'm uh, I'm just kind of holding off on buying an out-of-state fishing license because. Oh yeah, that's right. You don't have Wisconsin license anymore. Yeah, so unless I'm going there for a fishing trip. I'm probably not going to buy a f the, they just switched it to a four day license. So I'm not going to buy a four day and then have to buy another four day. And at that point you're losing money. So I'm just holding off for now. Well, you could just do what I did for a couple of years. And if there's any DNR officers out there, uh, plug your ears um, and use, if you still have your student ID from UWSP, you can get in state. If you still have your, uh, your ID. Yeah. Blow <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly you'd have to dust it off but uh yeah you could use that they'll take that and then uh n nobody really checks into that too much so J just just fyi don't do that but it's out do there. that till the day i die <laughs> yeah 90 which... years old hand on my student id from 2016 <laughs> well the, i played myself on that one because i used it for like two or three years after college and now i'm a resident of this state and they're taking my taxes so 
I played myself <laughs> on that one. They got me. They got me. But uh, yeah, no, that's awesome, man. And then uh, yeah, so you, and uh, were you guys? You guys weren't camping, were you? You guys were just uh, crashing at Tracy's folks' house. Yeah, well, we actually did set up the pop up in their driveway because it needed to air out and clean out and stuff, and we just decided to spend one of the nights in there. Oh, nice. That's romantic. Look at you two. Yeah, I'm all about those staycations, man. <laughs> yeah, nobody, uh, I'm not trying to spend any money, but yeah, no, I feel you on that one. Um, yeah, no, that's cool. Uh, How about you? Yeah. Uh, well, this weekend, I had, a, I had an interesting weekend. Uh, this weekend on Friday night, I uh, drove up from Stevens Point up to Tomahawk, Wisconsin, to the always lovely Treehaven uh, uh, education site. Uh, part of the University of Wisconsin Stevens Point, and I was an instructor this weekend at the Becoming an Outdoors Woman retreat. Uh, so I taught uh, three classes there. I taught two beginning fishing classes, and then I taught, uh, or I should say, assistant taught realistically um, the chainsaw safety and tree felling. Uh, it was a really good time. We got up there. I think there's probably sixty women give or take of kind of all ages and backgrounds. They, they come up there for this retreat. They, uh, they take, uh, they have their choice of a huge variety of classes from archery to fishing to birding, all outdoors related, obviously. Um, and, uh, they pick their classes. They take these classes. They learn about the outdoors. It was, uh, it was super fun. Uh, got, got some of these participants on some fish, um, Caught some little perch, a uh, couple little bluegills, and uh, obviously I had to take some casts while I was there. I mean, I'm on the water teaching them, so I have to show them. Uh, I caught a couple pike there, uh, which, Zach, you're probably familiar. It was right on the Harrison flowage there, right at that little uh, that spillway. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so caught some uh, caught some pike, some other stuff over there was good. And then the, uh, the tree fouling went super well. It was awesome to see the women... Uh, go from being deathly afraid of this machine uh, to being super comfortable with it. And I, I basically had to yank the chainsaw out of their hands at one point because they're, you know, just going to, I'm like, yo, it's been like an hour. Uh, give that back. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was, it was a lot of fun. Got a lot of good food. I uh, got to hear a lot of good stories, meet a lot of cool people. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, to doing it again next year and uh, you know, uh, see, see what it's all about. So yeah, it was, uh, it was a good time. So was this some of those women's first time casting a rod, catching a fish, stuff like that? Yeah, pretty much most of them either had no experience at all or, uh, you know, maybe had gone out with their wanted to learn how to go out with their kids or, you know, their husband goes out fishing and, you know, the husband or, you know, whatever significant other never showed them how to fish. So this is a good chance for them to to not feel like an idiot in front of their family or friends and like have to learn how to fish. It was, you know, very relaxed environment, got to teach them, you know, where to fish and kind of how to, uh, how to decide where a good spot to fish is, how to set up a rod. Like I brought in rods and reels from scratch. So they're able to, you know, put the rods together, learn how to tie knots, what lures did everything. I mean, you know, we took like th three and a half hours, uh, you know, it was like half an hour to an hour in the classroom. And then we went out for a couple hours, uh, fishing and they got to learn how to cast. I mean, I brought out bait casters and stuff, uh, spinning reels. They, they were able to try whatever they wanted, any lures they wanted to try. And 
just uh, just get out there. So yeah, it was a, for a good first experience for a lot of them. I got great reviews. So yeah, come to becoming an outdoors woman next year. Uh, any women out there that are listening, it's a lot of fun. And now, could they just not find a woman to teach it, so they turn directly to you <laughs> as the next closest thing? Or uh, no, so uh, the instructors are. Um, uh, all, all of the uh, participants are all women, obviously, um, but the instructors are both male and female. I'd say it's actually probably more male instructors than female instructors. Um, but yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot of cool classes. And um, I mean, it's just different experts from the field. I mean, and, and they don't decide, you know, men or women. Like I volunteered for this a while back. And obviously with my background, I've taught, you know, tons and tons of fishing courses. So with my background, it was... Uh, you know, it was kind of a, a good fit. So they, they took me on and I got three square meals a day and a uh, roof over my head. And, you know, it was, uh, it was a good time. They had some, uh, they had some raffles and stuff, which I won one raffle, but I just gave it away. It was a, it was a pink t-shirt. So I was like, uh, you know what, somebody else, <laughs> I, you know, as much as I would love to rock that, I don't think, uh, I, I wasn't into it that much. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, and hopefully, then those women can go on and pass that tradition down to a son or daughter that hasn't done it either. No, uh, absolutely. It's kind of like a stepping stone. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's a good thing because I hate to see that people are um, embarrassed to, uh, to do anything or to ask about the outdoors. You know, it's, it, nobody should ever be embarrassed to ask for help with any of that stuff. And, um, you know, it's a good chance for somebody that may be embarrassed to ask about this to get out there. So, yeah, it was it was a good time. But, yeah, it's all so about just passing it down. Exactly, got to get people out there any way any way possible. But, uh, yeah, so that was my weekend. Uh, I think I think that's a good uh, good turning point. Uh, you know, Zach, you got uh, you kind of came up with these news articles this week. I, I'll let you lead the way here. Uh, you want to bring us into the news this week? Yeah. Um, so just first one, just an interesting article I read with all these fires going on lately. Um, and California has been going through a lot of fires in the past years. And they did some studies on the black-backed woodpecker in particular. And they're stating that, or they believe that these fires are too intense they're too hot they're burning too much you hear all that in the news but these woodpeckers actually like fire um like a lot of different species they like that edge habitat it creates they eat um wood boring beetles and a fire is a great way to get better access to them but as i stated they these fires are too hot and too intense even for these blackback woodpeckers because the way they live, it's the older woodpeckers really like those high-intensity burns. Um, they like to get in there and kind of just, they know, what they, they know what they're about. And so they know where to find the food sources and everything like that. And then the fledglings actually like that edge habitat 
What are you doing? I'm hearing a bunch of different crap going on. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. I got to take my medicine. My allergies, my allergies be acting up, man. It's all these wildfires coming in and giving me damn allergies over here in Wisconsin. It's nuts. <laughs> a bunch of soot coming <laughs> on. Yeah, so dude, I just bought a freaking air purifying thing, dude. I'm dying over here. About to pop a bunch of Benadryl and go for a little ride, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> we better yeah. hurry up. <laughs> no, um, but so no. these fled these fledglings like the lower severity fires because they like that real uh, gradual edge habitat because they might still be learning how to go after these different food sources that the adults have, and these fledglings or younger birds of the year have not figured out yet. Um, and then to these adults that feed on these beetles they create crevices for bluebirds flying squirrels a whole array of different species um and with these high intensity fires they can't get these two different age classes to kind of coincide like they should um the most badass word in the article they used was pyrodiversity yeah, which is no, basically I... just kind of checkerboarding your intensities and checkerboarding your habitats, which is really what the basis of prescribed burning is. But um, we can get into that in a minute here. What are you thinking about this article, Austin? Well, I thought I thought it was very interesting to uh, just from looking at it from an ecological standpoint and looking at the the uh, kind of the food web in any given habitat. And the effects that it could have, because when you really think about it, these these woodpeckers, you know, you everyone knows these woodpeckers going up to trees, boring holes. But then you don't th- like and it didn't really uh, pop up in my mind initially. And then after reading, I was like, oh, OK, was the fact that these do provide habitat for uh, and, and nesting for so many other creatures. And uh, yeah. that exactly like you were saying with that pyrodiversity. It's a, and that to me, and I really want to read more on this because uh, it is such an interesting topic. Because, like you were saying, with the prescribed burns, and from a foliage standpoint, most people, well, I, I guess I shouldn't see, say that. Uh, from a foliage standpoint, prescribed burns and wildfires are sometimes excellent and very much needed, especially in the Great Plains and the Midwest. Like, you, you need to burn. Um, but, uh, out west, it seems like these fires are getting so crazy. You wonder the effects, the pros and cons that will, that it will have for certain species. Because most stuff will uh, will uh, come back for the most part. And you think of, I think it's the sequoia trees. Is it the sequoias or the redwoods? Like they, the for their cones to actually uh, germinate, they need to be burned by fire before they'll ever even germinate. So most of these species have adapted to wildfires, but now it's getting so unbelievably crazy with. Uh, with climate change and so many other things, these fires are burning so hot and so big. It's kind of ruining the habitat for some species, but I'm curious to see how it plays out for other ones, because you may end up seeing 15, 20 years from now, some of these woodpeckers, you know, start adapting to this. And I, I'm, and I mean, it's terrible for the birds right now, but I'm curious to see how it plays out in the long run. Yeah. And I think the, The biggest thing to take away from this is people need to be more open about prescribed burnings so we don't get to these uh, these wildfires. Um, You know, you're keeping succession knocked back, prescribed burning, so you don't have giant fuel sources of these big giant trees. The fires aren't going to be able to go anywhere. So we just 
people need to be more open to prescribing fire and knocking back succession so you don't have this these giant buildups which only snowball the effects of these uh catastrophes well yeah and you and i have burned plenty i mean i've i burned three thousand acres last year um you could see what it does it i mean it just regenerates everything slowly and then you don't have these giant big nasty piles of basically kindling you have you know a nice lush prairie or a nice clean understory or just anything else besides this giant fuel source well, and it's uh, it's not only the the prescribed burning, but uh, a part of this touches on which I, in the next article I, I did want to touch on this a little bit, but um, is the uh, some of the timber harvest and management of these forests. I mean, it, it needs to be done. Is it, it's and I don't want to say it's a necessary evil because it's not an evil. It's just a necessary thing that needs to be done. Is I think there's so much public outcry these days for, oh, we don't want to chop down trees. We don't want to do, you know, keep nature natural. Well, the problem is you could either keep nature natural. You can't, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you don't touch it and manage it, you're going to have these big issues. But if you have those big issues, you can't complain when we lose species or, you know, uh, numbers come down in certain things, you either need to manage them or let it go. And then whatever happens, happens. And I think that's a, it's a very fine line to walk, but I think with public outcry these days, that's uh, becoming more and more difficult. Yeah, these big, giant, old-growth tree stands that nobody wants to see clear-cut are basically deserts. I mean, they're not much better than a cornfield or a bean field. You're not going to have your diversity. You're not going to have different species of wildlife utilizing it you take a clear cut give it five ten years that is going to be a flourishing habitat for all different kinds of animals no absolutely absolutely but yeah in the long i mean just uh you know back to just touch on this article yeah i thought i thought it was interesting and it is i mean this is obviously one single species uh that we're looking at but um I'm I'm more curious than anything to see more of the long-term effects because uh, I think there's a lot more species, obviously more so than the, the single one mentioned in this article, that are being affected by these high-intensity fires. But, I mean, you're going to get this in the short run, but I'm more curious about the long-term effects going forward because these high-intensity fires have really been only happening for, you know, the last 10 to 20 years. Uh, you know, if you look at some of the, the acreage of the fires in California, you could see how much they've increased over, you know, since the seventies and eighties. Yep. Just a little food for thought. Yep. Food for thought there. All right. And then, uh, this next article, which, um, I, uh, dumbly <laughs> just said last week, <laughs> <laughs> William Perry Penley, which I thought was a name I could trust. Sounds like a name. And then I looked at his picture and I saw that he was uh, looked very much like a child rapist. And, uh, <laughs> a crusty sock. I, I, you know, uh, I showed a, a friend of mine his picture and he said, well, he either looks like anyone from Texas or a pedophile anywhere else. And I said, oh, that's actually a very a good point. <laughs> I can't I can't trust someone with uh, beautiful blonde hair. I shouldn't say beautiful with blonde hair. And a black mustache. That can't be trusted. <laughs> you don't know what that guy's thinking. I don't know what's going through his head, uh, going through his head, but it's not good. 
it's not good. Anything that can be going through, but, um, Zach, I mean, yeah. Do you want to kind of bring this, uh, kind of explain what's going on here? Uh, yeah, I could just touch <coughs> on stuff quick. Um, so the BLM or Bureau of Land Management needed a new director for the position. Um, so they, they just elected William Perry Penley to be a sit-in and he has been on the record for years stating how he doesn't like public lands. He doesn't like federally owned lands. Uh, he is quoted by saying our founding fathers intended for public lands to be sold. Yes. Uh, I mean, he's just, if you like hiking around a public trail or hunting or fishing or anything, he should not be the guy that you want in office right now. Yeah. Well, and, uh, I, and I think this is a bit of a nuanced issue because I looked into this pretty in depth and I totally agree with you, this guy. And I think it's important to note that he was a, uh, a lawyer that, uh, worked heavily against, uh, the, the U S government in, uh, for oil and gas industries and getting land for them. But, uh, yeah, this guy, and he seems so all over the board here because basically what he seems like to me is, um, he seems like a kind of a yes man to the, the current government, whether that be the president or, you know, whoever you want to think is totally in charge. But the big thing here and what I really read into this more and more was you have to realize that the Bureau of Land Management is a sub a, a sub government of the Department of the Interior. And the the Department of the Interior is headed by a guy named uh, David Bernhardt. And David Bernhardt is actually very, very pro-public lands, not selling stuff. He has uh, uh, vehemently said that, uh, you know, he doesn't want to sell public lands. But, but he's that, the one that appointed him. Uh, yes and no. I mean, there's a lot of politics that go into that. Um, but yes, no, that, that, and I'm sure it wasn't just his decision. Um, but I think the thing, and I, and I'm curious to hear your, your opinion on this because with some of this stuff, and I think people need, you know, at least in my opinion, I think people need to realize is that a lot of the land, uh, public lands is already leased to gas and oil industries, whether they use it or not is up to them. But uh, the other thing is, is a lot of stuff that you would think is public access is not necessarily public ac access in the way that you think. Like uh, if we have, uh, you know, public lands, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can ATV on it, that you could do other things that actually has to be allocated specifically for that. And that falls into that thing. Oh, they're giving up public lands. Well, they're turning it into an ATV recreation area or an ORV recreation area. Or, oh, they're giving up this public land. Well, it's going to be cattle grazing. So it really doesn't affect the public access. It's just now cows can go on there. So there, I think there's a lot more to this than people are saying. But I don't like what this guy has said. I totally agree. I don't like what this guy has said in the past. I think... I'm hoping that he doesn't follow through with a lot of the stuff he said in the past because then we'll be screwed. But I think it is a bit of a nuanced issue. We have to realize that sometimes uh, allocating public lands to other things is not always for, for the worst. 
Yeah, I mean, there's always has to be some sort of uh, looking into the future. Um, the BLM manages 250, 250,000. 250 million acres. 250 million acres. I've, I knew it was 250 something. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that land is owned by the federal government because nobody else wanted it, basically. That's how yeah. the land became owned by the feds. So, um, I mean, that's in the eyes of them back then when they acquired it, it was junk land. And now, I mean, most of the BLM, you can go Baja and on or, you know, ripping around on because that's just kind of how it's set up. Um, and people have been grazing on there forever. And I mean, everybody probably remembers hearing about that Bundy case with grazing on BLM land like a few years ago. So um, there's just a lot of issues around what people think is theirs versus what people think is the public ground that they have the right to be on. And I just think that there's uh, I don't, there's just needs to be some kind of understanding about all this and um, you know, oil and mining stuff is gonna if they start drilling in new places, well, they're I guarantee you they're gonna start thinking, well, we own it, stay off it, but uh, there needs to be some kind of line drawn. Yeah, well, and that and that's a weird thing about BLM land, as opposed because like if you look at national park land, everyone knows for the most part you can't hunt on it. It's wildlife area. You basically can't do anything to it. It's just managed by the federal government, and that's it. BLM land is kind of a weird thing because you could actually have industry on on BLM land. Like if you take like national forests, for example, right? You could forest, and there's tons of timber harvest, and I was actually looking at some of the numbers, and this is one of those things where, like you're saying, that there, you need to have a line, but it's a, such a weird, nuanced issue because I was just looking uh, for, let's see, what year was it? So in uh, 2018, uh, there's 25.5 million acres of that 250 that you're saying, so roughly 10% of the acres are already allocated for energy use, which is oil, fracking, you know, you, you name it. And, you know, you try and keep that footprint as minimal as possible because that's already been leased way pre well before any of the current, you know, president or anything like that. But there's a lot of other stuff too, like the, um, uh, with the logging, uh, there was $58 million done in timber sales off of federal land in 2018 in region one alone and that's stuff that needs to be done i mean you have uh and i mean there's even professors at the university that work on projects for this that um i mean they're picking these trees out specifically and going in areas where it's needed like just like we were talking with the wildfires and everything else so it is kind of a weird issue because it's public land but it does still need to be managed and the, and the federal government just doesn't have the power so you do have to let some private industry come in there and, and do work on it yeah, um, it's just a sticky, smelly, slippery. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I totally agree with you. But yeah, this dude, the stuff that he said in the past, he's was saying some real. Oh, and also, he doesn't believe in global warming. Did you read that? I did. Yes. 
<laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. This dude, <laughs> I I don't know, and I wish it, you know. I and that's why I say it's nuanced because I just am hoping for the best. But this guy is a real turd burglar when it comes to actual science and like liking public land and stuff. And that's why I'm hoping this guy, David Bernhardt, the head of the Department of the Interior, he's a big hunter, big fisherman, big outdoors guy. Um, and he's pretty pro public lands and everything else. So I'm hoping he keeps them in check. But one other thing on this topic, did you see uh, that the BLM is moving their headquarters? Did you read yes, that? Yes, they're moving to Colorado. Yeah. So what do you think about that? Um, kind of torn. I mean, it, it, it's definitely going to be harder for them to kind of interact with other agencies and things like that. Um, but then again, they are closer to the land that they manage, which is mainly in the Western States. So, uh, I don't know. I'm kind of torn between, uh, which one I think is more important. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you because I, I was torn for the same thing because you want the legislators to be as close as possible to D.C. where the, you know, kind of the the where the sausage is made. Yeah, exactly. Where the, where the sausage is made. But at the at the other on the other hand, it's uh, and I think there was a quote in one of these articles that said uh, it's like having a landlord that lives 20 or 2000 miles away. So you're away from where the sausage is made, but you're not near where your stuff is going on and where your land is. But I did want to note, and I looked into this more, was that of the 500 kind of legislative jobs within the BLM, only 85 of those are moving to the headquarters at the BLM. So they will still have a a very high majority of their jobs will still be in D.C., but it just seems like the much higher ups are going to be uh, at the uh, headquarters now in Grand Junction, I believe it is, Colorado. Yeah. Well, and yeah, so, I mean, it's all, it all has to be taken with a nuanced perspective just because this guy should not be here. This guy should not be the director of the BLM. And that's why we have to kind of look at everything in a nuanced way. Yeah. If somebody was pro, you know, public land BLM, you know, pro hunting, fishing, uh, like it should be, then we wouldn't be raising an eyebrow at how it's being run, but this guy is just not the right fit. He said, he's not going to, he's going to follow through with just the Trump administration's plan, but he has a lot of power at his fingertips and you never know people lie all the time. Yeah, no, I'm with you. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping it plays out for the best and we'll, we'll, we'll see what ends up happening, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot into this issue. I kind of fell down a rabbit hole and was I got a whole freaking page of scribbled out notes on all sorts of stuff. So I was enlightened by a lot of this. And I would encourage anyone else really look into the issues because a lot of this stuff is not going to make front page news at all. And you really got to dig deep, like just for me to figure out some of the names of these people, what they actually do, where this land is allocated. I had to go through pages and pages of federal documents and all this stuff so yeah i would encourage everyone just to look into it and have your own opinions on it we're just two knuckleheads talking about whatever so yeah um yeah (laughs) so and then we have one more time about that crusty sock (laughs) yeah speaking of crusty socks should we no we're not going to talk about (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. You might as well bring it up. All right, I'll bring it up. Just, so, don't, speaking... just keep it P- PG-13. So, um, <laughs> speaking of crusty socks, perfect segue. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of just, I kind of just uh, lobbed that one up to you, and you, you just did, and, yeah. Part. And I, I, I can't not hit it when you throw me a, a beach ball <laughs> like that. So, um, one of the most popular websites on the internet, uh, Pornhub, uh, which we could all, I'm sure anyone listening probably has some general idea of what they uh, put on their website. Don't look at it at work. Uh, put on your incognito tab, and uh, you know go to confession afterwards because um (laughs) you're gonna see some stuff uh but uh they just released which hey big ups to them any way that you can promote you know conservationism and uh environmentalism fine by me but they did just release a a, uh, an adult film uh on a uh very um polluted beach and if you watch the video which i'm not uh recommending that you do but uh if you watch this video, they are donating money to uh, beach cleanups uh, around the world. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was it's an interesting thought. And I'm, you know, this one is obviously not PG and not safe for work, but um, it does make me a little bit happy to see even some of the most disgusting of industries uh, promoting a, a environmentalism. And uh, I mean, we see it all over the place, you know, buy this for a dollar, you know, use the paper straws. And I, and I do think, you know, all joking aside, I think it is important that all these industries uh, across the board, including adult films, uh, start um, start moving towards an environmentalism uh, approach and promoting environmentalism. Uh, I mean, would you agree? Yeah, Um I was telling you before we started recording, I was trying to find just an article or something describing what this was all about because I just saw it <laughs> Instagram and uh, I was terrified the minute I pressed <laughs> enter on Google search. And that's as far as I got in thinking before I threw my laptop in the garbage. Uh, probably, probably a safe bet, but. Um... Yeah, so uh, that's that's that, I guess. So check it out if you want, if you're not at work or if you're a disgusting individual like myself. So I guess check that out. Um, so um, and now for the, the big uh, uh, coup d'etat is and Zach. I know I'm always excited for it. I know you're excited for it, even though it's pretty much meaningless in a sense, which I'm sure we'll touch on is the annual duck survey by the national or the uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife. Zach, you are the in-house duck expert. Give us the the hot points, the the general consensus, and and your thoughts. Yeah, uh, we talked about it a little bit last week with Connor, but um, numbers are pretty similar to last year. Uh, somebody's got to figure something out how to help these pintails and bluebills, but and the gadwalls. The oh, gadwalls. Yeah. Oh, they were. Nah, yeah. Well, whatever. Go on. Sorry. Um. But yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be similar to last year. Um. I mean, not that any one hunter can actually tell. Oh, there's there's two million less ducks uh, this year than last year. I mean, people are freaking out about nothing. Um, it's not 
mismanagement. It's not, you know, you can't blame anybody. It's just cyclical. Uh, I forget how many years ago it was now, but there was like 46 million ducks as a high. You know, that that might be an anomaly. We might be in the carrying capacity as we speak right now. We don't know because ducks have kind of been fluctuating a lot lately, but uh, it's going to be another good year. And I just went scouting yesterday for teal. Just saw a bunch of wood ducks, but that got me in the that got me in the zone. And uh, Zach, can you uh, touch on and if you could explain in detail, if not, I could I could touch on this a bit, but um how they actually go about doing these duck surveys. Cause I think that's a very important thing to realize when they do these. Yeah. Um, so the biggest takeaway is overall pond counts. And if I remember right, they cover a span of about 2 million square miles over uh, selected breeding areas, which are, uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, all the way up into, uh, what is that, like, BC? And it actually touches parts of Alaska, too. Yeah, they do some in Alaska, and then Montana, North and South Dakota, Minnesota. Um, parts of Michigan, parts of Wisconsin, which they add to the survey, but they do that within the states. Yeah, that's a state deal. And then uh, all the East Coast uh, provinces. So um, that's their main tool. They fly all about counting ponds. And then um, they also gather those uh, state data from just those northern tiered Midwest states and then those northern tiered uh, eastern states. Yeah, no, it's... uh... And uh, from what I was reading, and I think it's uh, interesting to note, so they, they do these pond surveys, and these are all done from, or for the most part, are done from aircraft. And that's both the, the pond counts as well as the, the duck counts. And I didn't really understand, can you, and I don't know if you know or not, but um, how do they, are they physically counting the ducks that they see from these planes? Are they looking for nests or how, how, do, how exactly does that work? Uh, from the best of my knowledge, and somebody can write in and tell me if I'm wrong, but these are pond counts, and then there's a sort of algorithm involved where they take uh, weather conditions and hatching conditions and everything like that and put it into one big giant algorithm and uh, kind of gather and decipher different data points from that also in conjunction with uh you know they might be talking to nest surveyors or brood count surveyors or anything like that to kind of get a idea of actual ducks on the ground but it's all just one big giant uh guess i mean you saw the standard deviations were plus or minus two hundred thousand for some of these ponds let alone the ducks which were yeah i was looking i was looking at yeah, I was looking at the total duck population count. Like that's overall, you know, the adding everything up, it was thirty-eight point nine million ducks, plus or minus seven hundred thousand. So I'm like, oh geez. And uh, Wisconsin, I mean, this year they were estimating two hundred and fifty thousand in Wisconsin with the standard deviation of uh, it was fifty thousand was the standard deviation because of weather conditions and other things. And I was like, good God, I mean, that's a twenty percent 
uh, you know, standard deviation, which is insane. Um, but Pretty I mean, is there, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a good cushion for researchers. Um, but was there any, any cause for concern that stuck out to you? Because the one that I was looking at and uh, the overall Gadwall count, and that was one that stuck out to me, which uh, the Gadwall count was it's 61% above the long-term average. But in the northern areas, it's on a, and I was looking at some of those charts, it's on a huge decline uh, for the, basically the breeding grounds for the Gadwalls up north. Um, and I think it was Manitou, somewhere in Canada, where they're basically seeing, like, no gadwalls anymore. But it, it's interesting to note that they're 61% up, but their breeding grounds in certain areas are abysmal. Yeah. Uh, I forgot. It must have been two or three years ago, or maybe even four now. But, I mean, gadwalls just kind of erupted out of nowhere. And they... Uh, they came in swarms and that's just like what I was saying before is maybe this is just their carrying capacity. They had a couple great years. They're back on their way down. If you look at those maps, though, uh, the U S fish and wildlife service wrote up their big giant paper for this year. And, um, you know, a lot of those Northern conditions were fair. Uh, last year they were good. Canada, yeah, this pretty dry, uh, and the U.S. states in the survey were in actually awesome conditions for the most part. Yeah, that's what I and uh, a couple of notes I've written down here is that northern Canada had uh, temps that were 10 degrees Celsius below the normal, so pretty cold conditions. And then um, there, yeah, and then there was a big drought in Canada. So I, I wonder how much of an effect that actually will have. I mean, the numbers look pretty on par and pretty good. And obviously just looking at what they color coded for different areas and like uh, it's red is the worst. And then you got like green is the best. And there's, there's a lot of green on there, at least just from looking at it, just generally speaking is so like, oh, okay. There's a lot of green, especially in Wisconsin where I'm at. I was like, oh, okay, cool. It was almost all green in Wisconsin. So that was pretty nice. And uh, an interesting thing that I took from this was just uh, some of the numbers, like numbers wise, I didn't realize how rare canvas backs are. I mean, there's yeah. only, it's insane because I've seen them around here and stuff and I never, I was, oh, okay, canvas backs. It's, you know, I see them as much as I see some of the other quote unquote rare species, but there's only 700,000 of them according to the survey. Yep. Yeah, uh, every time I shoot one, I try and really just take a step back and realize that, you know, if ducks are going to be on their way out, this is going to be one of the first ones, and they're they're special. Yeah, they got and, a lot of stuff going on with them that's kind of, they got a lot of figuring out to do, too, on those where they're nesting and how success rates are going to turn out. And so you've been on the ground for... Uh, doing, you know, no, you, you've done surveys and you were in Iowa when you were doing the, the nesting surveys, uh, Western North Dakota. Okay. So you're in North Dakota and can you kind of touch on your experience with, uh, doing the nesting surveys and your work and what exactly you were doing with that and how it was done? Yeah. Uh, so I was based out of Williston which is all the way on the central western edge. We were probably 15 miles from Montana. And we just 
we would go out to these prairies, uh, whether they be public land or from a consenting landowner that allowed us to be on their land. Uh, we would bring our two ATVs and we'd strap a 100 foot chain to each of us, stretch it all the way out. And then we would just drive back, pivot, back, pivot, back, pivot. And I mean, North Dakota is the duck that produces 80% of the central flyways ducks and North Dakota produces, or the two Dakotas produce 50% of the country's ducks. Okay. Yeah. And so with your numbers, so when you were working on this and you were, were you actually part of the, this survey? Is that where you guys were putting your data to? Uh, no, I worked for a research uh, student that was doing a different uh, study on oil and gas drilling in comparison to duck nesting populations. Interesting, yeah. So, and we with found, that, so- me and my partner found 450 nests in a couple months, and we would monitor each and every nest until it either got depredated on or it hatched out and we'd record every every single one of them and so you just kick the the birds would just kick up the hens would you'd get the hens to fly up and then you'd go in would you were, were you counting eggs or were you waiting for actually the the hatchlings or uh we were doing everything so the duck would the hen would flush we'd walk up to the nest we'd count the eggs and then we would candle them so we hold them up hold each or a couple eggs up to the light and see what stage of incubation they're in uh usually a duck will lay anywhere from 10 to 12 ish eggs that's first time around so if we see that there's four eggs in there and it's early in the year uh you know we'll know that she hasn't started incubating because they can lay they lay one egg a day until they reach their magic number and then they start incubating so that each one of those eggs hatches on the same day. Oh, okay. And so when you when you're candling these, what are you looking for? I mean, you're you're just looking at the embryo and then uh, using a chart or something to decide what stage in the incubation process it's in. Yeah. So I mean, there's just a little nucleus on the first day or before incubation even, and then these membranes and nucleuses kind of split and come together and loop. And I mean, there's all different anywhere from just a little dot to you can basically see a full grown duckling in the egg. Um, And it's just absolutely insane because it takes, well, 10 to 12 days if they hatch, if they lay an egg a day and then about 21, 23 days they can have a full, a full uh, clutch of about a dozen ducklings, and some days were pretty awesome where we would actually get to the nest while they were pipping, and pipping is when they're cracking out of their shell. Um, I got a really cool video we might have to put up somewhere of a northern shoveler pipping and cracking out of its shell, and I took the video through the candling tube. It's really cool. That's neat. Yeah, for sure. And so like, and when you say the candling tube, sorry, you're just holding, is this like an apparatus that you bring with you or is it like just a flashlight and you're kind of eyeballing it? Or I I mean, I know nothing about this. It's highly technical. You see, it's a rubber (laughs) pipe that's about six inches long and you hold that up to the sun. 
<laughs> oh, yes, indubitably. Indubitably, yes. <laughs> Very technical. Yes, indeed. Hey, whatever works, right? You could uh, see everything. That's all you needed. Yeah, yeah. It, it, so it, we, it, would, we did that data for the grad student, but then also Ducks Unlimited was doing brood surveys. So after the duck hatched, they had uh, researchers walking around to each of these wetlands in the given area and surveying broods, which are families of ducks, and it was species number of um, the like stages and things like that. So that would be the next step after what we were doing with Delta waterfowl. And uh, yeah, oh yeah. And did you do anything with geese at all, or did you were just strictly strictly duck? And if you were strictly with duck, were you limited to certain species, or you're just kicking up whatever and identifying them and then recording that data? Uh, we just did ducks geese were uh they nest a little closer to like water edges and stuff and we didn't have that capability um but <clears throat> what was the second part to that uh were you, you were were you identifying any species in particular oh yeah um no we were just going after whatever was nesting in our little transects um we couldn't really target diving ducks because they nest over water on floating nests or cattail beds so we were mainly going after puddle ducks the only exception is uh lesser scop do actually bed and nest in the prairies instead of every other diver they're on uh floating cattail marshes or over water. We did find some. We found one or a couple canvas back nests just from potholes that we could just drag over the top of. But uh, no, it was mainly just puddle ducks. A lot of a lot of teal, a lot of mallards, a lot of gadwall, a lot of spoon spoonies or northern shovelers. Um, just a lot of any puddle duck you can imagine. Some widgeons. I mean, it was just a broad array. Nice. And so, I mean, and once again, I mean, with your experience and everything else, I mean, what what's the main, the main gist from this duck survey? Obviously, you have a ton of experience in this. What what what's your final takeaway from uh, from this duck survey? Well, I'm excited. I don't see a reason why anybody should not be excited i mean it's another year and we get to shoot ducks again so i'm not going to complain i'm i'm with you and like i said these my, my biggest takeaway is always uh you know the numbers are there but it's not really in all reality if you do your scouting you look at things and judging by the numbers this year i didn't see anything that stuck out to me pretty much everything was on par from last year or slightly above um, I don't see any reason to to think that this year is going to be any better or worse than, you know, the last few years. Oh, yeah. We'll be so, all right. We'll be all right. All right. Cool. So, yeah, that's the annual duck survey. I guess if you have any questions uh, about uh, ducks in general, I, I would say, uh, which we'll, we'll be coming out with a, uh, a an email and an Instagram probably this week. Um, you hit us up on our Instagram and then, uh, hopefully Zach can answer any questions on that. And I will, 
uh, answer any questions that Zach wants to answer, but just ask him. So we'll be good. Uh, yeah, this and, is uh, August 28th, so anytime after uh, about September 1st. Yeah, expect September 1st. We'll have an Instagram and uh, potentially an email address as well, and then uh, you can just ask us questions on there. All right, so like Zach, why we suck so bad. <laughs> yes, we'll be telling you. Uh, you'll ask us questions, and we'll just say stupid question next. Um, but <laughs> so um, yeah, so Zach, uh, we're starting. I'll let you bring us into this. What's the, the news segment that we're gonna have? Hot gear. Cold beer. God, really rolls off the tongue. Yeah, I uh, I, I tried to rhyme. <laughs> I see I that, and you did it. The name that would rhyme. <laughs> you really did it. Really, really got it there. You know, and those are my two works. favorite. Those are my two <laughs> favorite things, and they rhyme. Just like ducks and bucks, and I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, hot beer, cold beer. Uh, it's a new segment we're gonna try out. Uh, just whatever kind of gear we're hot on right now. Any uh, anything that we just got, or we're excited to try and use this season, and then uh, just any good beers that we've been drinking, we want to bring up, or any type of drinks at all that uh, we feel need to be expressed. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, uh, you want me to start it off here? Yeah. Go ahead. All right. So, uh, as far as the hot gear, um, I just bought a new used, so not used, but I bought it off a buddy of mine, is a Tackle Industries. Uh, it is a nine-foot heavy musky rod. Uh, the thing's awesome. Uh, I got a Abu Garcia C5 reel on it. Thing's freaking sweet. I mean, it's like casting with the pool cue. I haven't thrown any bulldogs with it or anything. Um, but the rod and I haven't caught any fish on it, unfortunately, but the thing as far as casting and everything else, the thing's a dream. It's got the nice, uh, I think it's an 18 inch grip on it. So you can really jerk the hell out of some bulldogs with that thing. It's an excellent rod so far. So good. I've been liking it a lot. Um, yeah. And then, uh, also another thing that I've been doing really well on and did well this weekend on is which it's not new gear, but, uh, is the eighth ounce chatterbait with the chartreuse silver and white skirt. I've been nailing the pike on it and I've, I'll probably get out on the river this week and I'm going camping this coming weekend. So I'm hoping to use it there as well. Um, it's been doing well for everything, especially through the cattails and everything else. I mean, you can just rip those chatterbaits through anything. Um, and I've been doing really well on them, especially the the little bit of chartreuse in there with the silver and white. It's been doing uh, doing really good. Um, yeah, and then uh, as far as the cold beer, uh, I hate to break the news to everybody. I'm not a huge beer drinker, but um, I will say that I did try a new whiskey that I got in Chicago. It's Colville Whiskey. It's their single barrel. And boy, oh boy, is that a tasty little treat, little, little, uh, little nip of that. And it's, uh, it, it's going, it's definitely not one that you, uh, I'm not going to put it with the, with the Coke, uh, in my go-to drink for everyone that's wondering is a Jack and Coke. Um, but yeah, the Koval whiskey, highly recommend. You can only get it in Chicago. I believe I got a little thing of it, but damn, is that stuff good? How about you, Zach? Any new gear? Uh, Yeah. I just 
purchased uh, Sitka water or Sitka gear, waterfowl, uh, light, uh, light core hoodie. It, I think I'm gonna use it quite a bit down here when it's, uh, you know, October and 60, 70 degrees still. So I'm excited for that. Uh, good <laughs> when, it, when it's Halloween, it's still 137 degrees in Missouri. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm you got, you got the not Sitka, too happy for early season. You got the Sitka uh, cutoff sleeveless tank top. Uh, that's <laughs> yeah. their, it's Marina wool though, so it's all right. <laughs> Keeps your you got a sweaty chest, but your arms and legs are just oh, so cool. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I'm excited to add it to my repertoire. I got the duck oven last year, and that's just about the best duck jacket money can buy. So I'm going to throw this on underneath it and be and, good to go. And Zach, uh, and you you turned me on to this. If you could turn on some of the listeners, too. Uh, obviously, not everyone could afford Sitka gear. Um, what's some good spots that you look at when you're buying this gear? And I know you gave me some websites. If you want to give it to our listeners for, uh, for buying discounted and cheap name brand gear. Yeah. Uh, hunt of the day is one of the good ones. I'm always checking. They renew stuff every day. Uh, sometimes they're going to be odds and ends and different sizes, but for you guys that aren't, large or extra large it's perfect or for you guys that are large and extra large like i am you just got to kind of get on it quick uh but i mean that's a lot of sitka gear stuff and a lot of different higher end stuff that you can just get as like an outlet kind of price uh and then camo fire is another really good one every every night at 11 they re they re uh re-up their page so they got like Sitka stuff, I mean, hiking stuff, uh, game bags, tents. Yeah, I saw they got flashlights. I've seen all sorts of stuff on there. Mosquito repellents, you name it, they got it on there. Yeah, and then another one that we always kind of look up and down is Sierra.com. Yeah, always Sierra, just... Sierra Club. Yeah, and if you're fortunate, you could actually, they, they do have some brick and mortar shops if i'm not uh if i'm not mistaken i think there's one in naperville illinois if anyone lives in that area i think there's a sierra outpost there yeah that's a sierra trading post yep yep sierra trading post that's it yeah so yeah uh, no that's good one too. i also got one more uh hot gear yeah let's hear uh, it when i was up in green bay at cabela's i picked up one of those uh outdoor edge knives and that's the folding knife with a replaceable blade. Um, really sweet little knife, uh, three and a half inch blade. You press a button, the old blade slips off. You push a new blade on, and you got a brand new knife, basically. And is it like a fillet knife, or is it just your generic, you know, multi-function knife? It's just like uh, any type of fixed blade, little pocket knife you can think of, uh, but it's just got that replaceable option. So it's pretty slick. I'm excited to use it. Nice, for sure. Yeah, and then... when I'm trapping and, you know, skin a bunch of coons and you can sharpen those replaceable ones too and they're dirt cheap, but skin a bunch of coons and then just swap them out, get a skin a deer, then swap it out, then, you know, breast out some ducks. Yeah, for sure. 
But uh, yeah, and then uh, I think uh, I think what the what we're, yeah what we're really waiting for is cold beer there, sir. Let's hear it. Uh, you know, I had the treat myself. I brought back some spotted cow from uh, New Glarus when I was back up in Wisconsin. I bootlegged it, if you will. <laughs> uh, also, if for all you fellas out there that like your seltzer drinks, we uh, just found our our own little gas station has the new natural light seltzers. <laughs> Uh, one what, 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 is Aloha Beaches, and the other one is called Catalina Lime Mixer. Okay, how are they? Honestly, guys, because I've seen nothing but Instagram going nuts over this. How are they? We got the Catalina Lime Mixer, and uh, you know, I I was hot on White Claws for all that a week or whatever. And these might have it topped. Really? Damn. Okay. Well, I might. I might have to get into the seltzer game. I'm trying to watch my figure, so you know. I I've would gotta... still. Any day of the week, I'd still choose a nectar of the gods, and that's Bush Light. But <laughs> uh, it's a good change every now and again to get some kind of some kind of nutrition in my drink. Yeah, like I got. Food. I got. Yeah, I got. <laughs> you got to get your vitamins. That's... Yeah. Um, yeah, and and prevent scurvy, uh, which you might get you might get in Minnesota or uh, in Missouri. Um, but uh, yeah, no, there's a couple which uh, next week I think I got one in mind. There's going to be a special release from Point Brewery, which is about two blocks from my house. Oh, peanut pretty... butter fun! Oh, you, yeah, yeah, you you know. You can already. cut that out. You can cut that out. I can tell. <laughs> we could just act surprised, but yeah, dude, I saw that. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's gonna be. I'm I'm really curious to see how that one is. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over to the brewery and pick it up straight from straight from the teat and pick it up over at the brewery when they release it. I think it's getting released on Friday. So, um, yeah. And then, uh, what do you got going on for the uh, the upcoming week there? Uh, let's see. I went teal scouting yesterday. I'll probably go back uh, Friday or Saturday. Just see if there's anything around or not. Um, Going to go to the shooting range. And then either try and find some doves to shoot or just try and go after some more squirrels. I just got to get out in the woods with the weather being how it is. Yeah, no, I feel you on that. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, and so did, is there even doves in Missouri? Am I dumb? Oh, there's doves. There, uh, <laughs> it's one of their bigger breeding grounds here they can they can nest two three times in a in a spring down here oh really oh, okay news to me the more you know yeah no that'll <laughs> be good yeah and then the squirrels yeah and uh, if you get any squirrel tails you're gonna have to send those up to me uh i'll make you some uh some bucktails out of those and then we can then you'll have some musculars for down there even do, do they have musky no it's just grass pickerel down there right yeah no musky no pike it's just pickerel oh gosh it's disgusting and yeah, I can't trust a fish that try, sounds like pickle. Sounds yeah. Like pickle. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's sweet. Yeah, it sounds like you got a pretty pretty decent week ahead of you, and it's Labor Day weekend. You doing any camping or anything like that? Uh, we might try to do just a close campground visit. Um, yeah, nothing too nothing too tight in the schedule. We're just going to kind of relax, and we've been running around a lot, so we'll just see what happens. Yeah, no, I feel you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this weekend, um, I've 
I don't know what the heck is going to be going on for me this weekend. I'm still every day, get home from work, shoot my bow. I'm getting better and better. And I keep, dude, I got to stop tinker stinking with the bow. I was like, oh, my whisker biscuit looks like it's a little bit off. I'm going to move it a couple of clicks. Almost blew a hole in the side of my neighbor's house. Um, <laughs> so then, that, uh, yeah, put that back where it was. And, um, yeah, so shoot my bow every day. Um, I've been uh, busting out, and it's sitting right on the couch next to me is my duck call lanyard. Uh, I've been, much, I'm sure, to my neighbor's delight, has been just ripping on, on duck calls at 10 o'clock at night. Um, did my practice in on that. Uh, but, yeah, no, this weekend uh, I'm actually going to be heading up to, or heading over, I should say, to uh, Apple River Canyon over by Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, it's in Wisconsin. I'm heading over there for some camping, uh, maybe some river rafting over there. Uh, bring the rods out. Going to get some fishing in. Hopefully I can hit up some smallium. I've been looking. I, there's some trout streams in that area, so I'm hoping to hit those. We'll see how that does. Maybe get some fly fishing in as well. Um, but, yeah, it's going to be a pretty chill Labor Day weekend. Going to hang out and enjoy my last weekend before uh, – the fall semester starts and then uh, I got to kick it into high gear once all the students come back and my life becomes a lot more busy. So yeah, that's what, that's what I got going on. Anything else? Uh, nothing too much. Just keep your calls in your truck and shoot your bow and, you know, practice, practice, practice. I just set a new trail cam up today. So just hoping I can get a dough in the freezer pretty soon after the season opens. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Oh, another, yeah, thing, uh, another thing I just found out yesterday is I'm going to Oklahoma in November now on a crane hunt. Oh, geez, that's awesome. Really, the old sand hills, the flaming yawn of the sky. So yeah. how'd, you get into, how'd you get into that one? You know somebody over there? Uh, no, me and my dad and brother just... We went and shot some snow geese in South Dakota a few years ago, and we just kind of wanted to make it a thing to go on a different kind of hunt every year. So this year it's going to be cranes. Well, once, uh, and that's in November, you said? Yeah, first week of November. Uh, we're, we, we're definitely going to have to do a podcast uh, from the, potentially from the field out there or uh, definitely while you're out there. That'll be awesome. Oh, that's sick, man. That's so sick. That's awesome um yeah i got quite the quite the bird uh bird trip coming up this fall because that's it's north dakota early october then cranes early november and it's all before duck season even starts down here damn i am uh i'm doing none of that i am just socking away vacation time because once the snow hits the ground it will be straight snowmobiling and snowboarding for me um but, uh, yeah, no, that's awesome, man. Yeah, we'll definitely, we're going to have to talk more about that at a later date. But, yeah, I think that uh, that pretty much wraps it up. Uh, I don't think I have any rounds left in the chamber. Uh, I guess the only thing, just like Zach said, you know, keep uh, keep getting out there, keep practicing your bow, go out and scout, uh, make any repairs to your boat now. I will say, well, it's still nice out. We're starting to get cold out here. You're not going to be wanting to work, you're not going to want to work on your boat in the driveway when it's, you know, 30 degrees come duck season, get it, get it fixed up, get your carbs clean now, get everything adjusted for cold weather. Now, uh, put so it in ready. the water, start the damn thing <laughs> and go, don't be yeah. that freaking guy that says, Oh, I'll, br- 
don't bring your boat. I got a boat. And then you can't get the freaking thing started <laughs> in the ramp. Yeah, no, that don't don't be that guy. Nobody likes that guy. Or, you know, oh dude, this it starts two pulls every time. Starts two pulls every time. Has a, it's a nineteen forty-seven uh Avonrude that runs <laughs> runs on whale oil. <laughs> we gotta shovel coal into the back of it. Yeah, it runs on yeah, exactly. It's and, a steam oh, no. combustion <laughs> engine. Starts every time, starts every time. Don't worry about it, man. I got it. And then it doesn't start. Yeah. And another thing, uh, yeah, with that being said, get your dogs all ready to go as well. I got a lot of buddies that got young dogs that are very keen on that their dogs are gonna be the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I'm curious to see if that actually pans out. Um so yeah, just get your stuff ready. Get get ready now. It'll make uh, make for a lot easier season once things uh, once uh, once things roll around. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's about all I got for uh, for this week. I, I think that's it. Zach, any closing remarks? Uh, just keep letting us know how we do, and uh, just let us know if you heard it, what you thought, what you want to hear us talk about. Yeah, no, I'm with you, and. Uh, yeah, that's about it. So thank, thanks for listening, and we will close out with a quote. Which I- All right, and for a closing quote by Aldo Leopold, there are two spiritual dangers in not owning a farm. One is the danger of supposing that breakfast comes from the grocery, and the other is that heat comes from the furnace. There you go. That's it. That's week three. There we go.